This talk was given by Ron Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and co-director of ZCNYC. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or to find out more about our retreats and residency programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. From Shanti Davis, uh, Masterwork, A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. Those who wish to guard their, guard their practice should very attentively guard their minds, for those who do not guard their minds will be unable to guard their practice. In this world, unsubdued and crazed elephants are incapable of causing such harm as the miseries of the deepest hell which can be caused by the unleashed elephant of mind. But if the elephant of mind is firmly bound on all sides by the rope of mindfulness, all fears will cease and all virtues will come into my hand. So Shantideva um, was a Buddhist master from the monastic universe of Nalanda in India. Um, And this work was composed in the 700s. And the story goes that Shantideva was not a highly regarded monastic within within that college monastery setting. And... um, perhaps almost as a joke, was asked to make a presentation to the Sangha. And um, he did. And uh, in doing so, was acknowledged as a master. He put together uh, a guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life with a thousand or so verses, of which I just read three of them. And... um, talked about pretty much all of the aspects of the Bodhisattva path. The original Buddhism of Shakyamuni Buddha emphasized the arhat, the being who has secured their own liberation from the misery of samsara. Um, Mahayana Buddhism has its ideal, the Bodhisattva ideal, which emphasizes the liberation of all beings before one's final liberation. In other words, you put the welfare in terms of spiritual practice of all beings ahead of your own. And Mahayana Buddhism likes to say this is a clear-cut difference. I'm not so sure. Um, The more I read the original Buddhist Buddha's teachings, the more I see um, and the more I attribute the Buddhist teachings to a particular time and place where that level of teaching was needed and effective. Um, And things, if it hasn't escaped our attention, change. Uh, And the emphasis on different teachings change. This is the Bodhisattva path is a very challenging practice. The Buddha way invites us to live in a way that in many ways is completely different than the standards of our life as they're modeled by those we encounter around us, modeled in business, modeled in politics, modeled in just ordinary life of the people we know and also modeled by our own deeply conditioned and practiced and accustomed way of being. So it's pretty revolutionary to to use your life in the specifics of your own personal life to deeply investigate the many ways you can put this, who you are, what your life is about, Um, How will you live over the long term, not the short term? 
uh, how does practice and your life meet or not meet? The Buddha said all that we experience rests on our mind. How we perceive and through our perceptions moves automatically to our thought. And um, we're, we're really creatures of our thought and feelings. And we think and act and speak out of our thoughts. And that creates a certain effect, a karma, if you will, cause and effect. And to practice as our awakened mind, we, we practice. It's not an accomplishment. It's a practice. It's something that we work at. Moving to open awareness and open awareness as much as we can. And to the practice of supporting our awakening, which is the Bodhisattva path. So I want to emphasize because we tend to go to the result. We tend to go to uh, that we're failing to accomplish something. And in fact, the whole way as we practice is accomplishment. That the practice is awakening. The awakening is practice. And I want to make sure as I speak that you're meeting me eyeball to eyeball so that I can see you and you can see me. And we acknowledge that what we think creates the reality we live out of. That's not a small acknowledgement. Do we understand that? That the way we think and feel creates how we experience reality. And so, and it creates the life that we live. Independently of the specifics of the life that we live. In other words, uh, a life can be um, wonderful and expressive and very satisfying, or terrible things can happen. And we're not in control of any of that. Most probably a mixture of that. But how we understand what happens in our life and how we practice it or don't practice it is, I think, the key perspective of whether we can live a life that has more than a modicum of joy and fullness or is a life of misery and unhappiness and a custom low-grade depression, maybe sometimes not low-grade, and constant anxiety. And this comes from how we use our mind. It's not outside us. In Zen, we talk directly to the obvious and common sense point that we're not in control of outcomes. That what will happen to us, what happens to us, is beyond our control. And no matter who we are, we face here, now, in our unknowing, a life of whatever comes our way. And inevitably, if we live long enough, aging and eventually dying, and changes in health. And as we go through life and get older, we get to appreciate that more and more. Uh, Perhaps first in those around us who are experiencing that, um, and then in ourselves. And we get to see before our eyes our actions uh, in concert with the law of unintended consequences. 
which I consider to be an immutable law, that no matter what we do, the consequences of that, A, we're not in control, and um, B, it's the results that are apparent to us are often not what we intend. They may be, but often not. And in fact, what I've seen is that when they are what we intend, that that creates, uh, sometimes subtly, sometimes not so, more suffering for ourselves. That to the extent that we can't think that we can control outcomes often leads to disaster. Even if in the short term we aren't, have controlled an outcome, that just tends to lead us to believe that we now are in control of outcomes, which is, in my experience, not the case. And even when our intentions are good, we'll create unintended effects that often harm others. That's humbling. If you, if you think about that. Now, if you don't, if you have no awareness of that, then you have no awareness of that. I remember in my training, I was trained to do foot and ankle and leg surgery. And... Um, I was well-trained. I had very good training. And part of my training was to see my patients often. And um, for the first year that I was in private practice, I was pretty proud of myself because I didn't see any complications. And I've told this story a couple of times before. Uh, I had several offices, uh, different locations. And... um, one time in one office, I did a surgery on somebody, and they, I discharged them. Uh, and several years later, I saw that same patient in a different office, but they didn't know they were seeing the same doctor who had operated on them before. And they said, and taking the history, they said they need the other foot operated on. Uh, and they had a, a, the first foot operated on by some doctor in a location that I knew I was the only one doing surgery, and they weren't happy with that. The outcome wasn't good, the doctor wasn't very nice, and they're hoping for a better experience, (laughs) not knowing they were speaking to the same doctor. Uh, And as I went along and saw results over time, um, I realized that um, my envisioned 100% good outcomes were, in fact, not that. Um, But unless I saw my patients over time, I never knew that. Perhaps more often our ignorance, our sleepiness of awareness, our being lost in the business as usual, and in the smallness of our life, creates an almost ongoing karma of unnoticed harm. I think we leave behind us a trail. Harm is often too strong a word. Sometimes it's just behind us a trail of difficulty and bother for people that um, we're just not aware of. You know, it's really obvious... uh, in a training situation where if I leave a dirty dish in the kitchen, somebody else is going to clean that. Or if I leave something undone, um, I notice that the waste paper basket uh, was full in one of the bathrooms. And it was full, and we have an all day sitting, and it's full. I didn't have the time to empty it, which would have been my preference. But I did have the time to take my foot and smash it down so at least half the the basket was now available. Um, Was that upaya, skillful means? I don't know. In my mind, it was. It was the best I can do in the circumstances. Um, But if I hadn't done that, uh, it would have affected other people. 
Um, and, you know, in a way, the worst effect is to come to a Zazenkai and see a full basket overflowing onto the floor. That's somebody's mind uh, in that full basket. We don't, perhaps in the most superficial way, know what is going on. And until we become sensitive to how we use our mind, become aware of the living reality of our being through our mind, nothing's going to change. And as the Buddha pointed out, one of the subtle effects of getting what we want is suffering. I've already said that in this talk. Sometimes we cause ourselves and others pain just by being who we are. Always unsatisfied. Always looking for more or less or better or bigger or smaller. Um, I read an article this week, I think it was in the New Yorker, but it might have been in The Economist, I don't remember, about how finally some economists are coming to grips with the fact that endless growth is going to destroy the world, that it just doesn't make any sense. And now, for the first time, looking at ways of this is just a small number of economists, don't get too excited, um, looking at ways, and for the first time it's become acceptable to look at ways for an economy to be and to help people be and live without endless growth. This is so obvious. I mean, it's like anything you look at that endlessly grows dies that implicit in endless growth is death. (coughs) And yes, there are many pleasures and moments of satisfaction in our life, but they're never permanent. We, We may try and make them permanent, but it ain't happening. Or if we try hard enough, We do it at the cost of many other important things. So this is the basic truth that we start off with in the Buddhist path. This is the basic acknowledgement. That our self, our ordinary self, the one that we're pretty familiar with, um, is inherently not connected, but is suffering itself. And I use the word suffering meaning dissatisfaction, disease, anxiety. Dis-ease, anxiety, fear, um, fill in your particular blanks, restlessness. And this is where we have to start to see our own mind if we wish to live a life of true satisfaction, of fulfillment, of happiness, if you will, if you understand happiness in, in the real sense. So we have to start with an acknowledgement that, for the most part, we're asleep. We're ignorant of our mind's influence on our thoughts and feelings and conditioning and how they're constantly directing us to do what we want without an understanding of much beyond our own desires. And it seems completely natural, does it not? I mean, it's what we know. And... It's not that we should throw out our desires, but what are our desires grounded in? What is the basis of how we live? Speaking for myself, um, my life completely changed. It's what I call a pivot point in my life. We all have pivot points. When I began to realize, because it's not a single point, 
that everything I encounter can be used to awaken. Every single thing. Now, it's one thing to realize that. It's a whole other thing to actually do that. And so, instead of seeing difficulties as obstacles outside myself to be overcome or fought against, and sometimes they should be, but that's a very narrow perspective. So my practice is to constantly ask myself, how can I use what is before me to help myself and others? And that is not an easy practice. When someone close to me is angry at me for an unjustified reason, the first thought that may come into my mind, in all fairness, the fifth time they do that is when I say, myself. But I've gotten to a point over many years where I seldom say that out loud. I say it in my mind, and then I practice something very different, which is not easy. Anger and resentment may be there. And so I give it space. I may walk away. I may just say nothing. Um, but I know if I say something out of that mindset that I'm just perpetuating both that person's and my person's um, anguish. Which doesn't mean that we don't need to set boundaries sometimes in relationships. We may. We do. But setting a boundary that's coming out of a loving compassion and setting a boundary that's coming out of self-protection. Two very, very different things with different karmas. And it's not always easy. Often it's not easy to understand where we're coming from. And in such cases, I've learned to pause and be patient with myself and to understand that my mind is very powerful And how I'm using my mind heavily influences the suffering that I leave behind me and myself and others. And therefore, I should be very careful and attend to my mind. And when I have some degree of confidence that I'm settled and present and this is appropriate, then I may or may not take action. And either way, it's coming from a place that I trust now. Shantideva talks to us through these encouragements as if it's his own practice that he's sharing with us, which is exactly what it is. So he's speaking very personally here. And he encourages us in our humanness to acknowledge our own misery, our own fumbling with our practice, our own wandering about, and sometimes in a subtle sense, how often we feel we're failing or perhaps not keeping in tune with the correctness of practice, which is a danger. Because of my particular personality and background, I've never been a good practitioner, according to some perspectives. I've always kind of been independent, and um, looked at things within practice with an open sense of how much this applies to me at this time and how much it doesn't, and been patient with that. And Shanti Deva's teachings are a good example for many, many, many years, including when they were the subject of an ango. I had, couldn't relate to them. I just couldn't. Um, and they just kind of bounced off my head. And then at a certain point, understanding that there were teachings here, because everyone assured me of that, my teachers assured me of that, I was able to, to read and study them in a different way that allowed me to open up 
But keep in mind, far more time was spent rejecting them than accepting them or investigating them. One of the things that helped me is to understand that the teachings that don't, are not in accord with our own understanding, that almost always it's not the fault of the teachings. It's not anybody's fault. But I'm just not mature enough in practice at any given time to understand that particular teaching. Well, how will I get mature enough? When I'm ready and able is to study those teachings. And that opens me up. It opens me up for exactly the same reason that I rejected them. I was close to them. And so I was close-minded. And so when we hear teachings or encounter teachings that don't directly speak to us, there's a possibility they're wrong, or there's a possibility that our practice and maturity is not at a place where we can take them in. Which doesn't mean we still can't appreciate them. We may not be able to relate to them intimately, but we should understand that the Buddhas and ancestors have something to offer us that from our deluded point of view seems foreign. But they're not suffering. We're suffering. And there's a reason. So Shanti Davis says, those who wish to guard their practice should very attentively guard their minds. For those who do not guard their minds will be unable to guard their practice. It's all right. I have an all-absorptive robe. It's all right. It's, It's already gone. And I don't have to take a shower tonight. In another section, Shanti Davis says, we need to put the Buddha's teaching, the Dharma, into practice because nothing can be accomplished by just reading the words. Someone sick can never be cured of illness, though merely through merely reading the medical instructions. So let's start with a highest aspiration. What a shame it would be if we didn't reach for what would make the most of our life worthwhile, which would be able to help ourselves and help others, and yet not sacrificing our own integrity or our own happiness. So to have that aspiration, to reach for the highest aspect of our life, and students come in all the time and say, put themselves down in some way. Um, We should look at that. We should look at what our aspiration actually is and what we're covering when we put ourselves down. It's a protection, of course. Um, Let's see how low I can set the bar so I'm not embarrassed or fearful or hurt. I'm suggesting we set the bar high that our aspiration of one of awakening and living out of that is achievable by all of us. In Buddhism, the greatest aspiration is your own awakening. And Shantideva writes every word from that perspective, that this can be your spiritual work and accomplishment. How? How can that be? Perhaps you're older and feel there's not enough time. Perhaps you're sick and you feel that that may impede your ability to sit and practice. Perhaps just our accomplished way of thinking is to criticize ourselves and put ourselves down. Perhaps it's never occurred to us, even though we're practicing, that we can realize ourselves. In the subtle and profound way, this is all protection. 
This is all a way of not truly being honest with ourselves. Now, we may not have that aspiration to be honest with ourselves, which is another way of saying to be truly awake. Give it time. If you continue to sit and continue to practice, things change. You know, it's interesting to ask, as I constantly do, why people practice, why you, meaning an individual before me, practices. And it's a question, of course, I ask myself. And it's at different times, sequentially, it's changed, enormously changed. I think all of us begin practice because we have some appreciation that our life can be more than it is and that we have some degree of dissatisfaction. And that is a laudable reason to practice. But there's more. There's much more. And to address that, to address our own inclination to, um, to live a full life, we begin to discover that this life, our life, initially is interconnected with everybody else. And so to begin to address our own unhappiness means we have to begin to see other people's unhappiness. That's just the start. It's much more than that. In this spiritual practice, we have the chance to discover that the other is ourself, and ourself is the other. That's just one side. The other side is that you are you and they are they. And in seeing clearly into both sides, you come alive. You come alive on the Bodhisattva path. So how do you do that? I don't know. It's unimaginable. We can't imagine how we will think and be as we continue to practice in the future. But let's, no matter who we are and what our life circumstances are, at least entertain the possibility that in dedicating our life to awakening, we cannot fail. We can't. Meaning whatever comes out of such a view will be goodness itself. You know the three pure precepts, the second of, its, of it. Practice good. Practice goodness. Practice the third is practice goodness for others. That's what will happen when you entertain the possibility that you can awaken. And that is a, a verb, a process. It's not an accomplishment. It's not a noun. It's not a thing. If we're going to lessen our suffering to any extent, the how is very simple and always present. You simply start where you are, wherever you are. Doesn't matter where you are, actually. It's irrelevant. You simply start as yourself. Because yourself is a Buddha. So, given that, you can't not be a Buddha. Inherently, you're good. Inherently, you're doing good for others. You just need to see that for yourself. So start. Those who wish to guard their practice should attentively guard their minds. How do we guard our minds? How do we guard our minds? Well, obviously, one way is with awareness. So that fits into, that checks the box of practice, right? We all know that. You know, we're going to practice, we're going to be aware etc., etc., etc. We're going to be a good Zen practitioner. I already said I'm not such a good Zen practitioner. Neither are you. 
just do the best we can. Second box is failure. You only learn through failing, right? You only learn by not paying attention, by hurting yourself and hurting others. That's how you learn. But that has to be with attention and awareness. That has to be connected to the desire to awaken. Otherwise, you're just hurting others. And we, we all know how to do that. We've spent a lifetime doing that. So now let's acknowledge that. That hurting others is a, a wide term. Creating difficulty, trouble, bother for others. You can't live without doing that. It's impossible to live without doing that. Understanding. It's another key. How do we guard our minds? We, understanding, which is a, another way of practicing. Um, understanding what we're doing and why we're doing it to the best of our ability. And acknowledging when we don't understand, which is part of understanding. It's questioning. And then I have the initials here, A-F-U. Anybody know what that stands for? All fucked up. We're all neurotic. We're all half crazy. We're all conditioned. All of us. And so what? It's a given to be conditioned. Nobody's free of it. Nobody. Enlightened, deluded. There's a difference, though. When we practice, the, the Buddhist word is klesis. I translate as neurosis. There are other definitions for that. We all have them. And if you try and banish them, you strengthen them, right? We, if, if you look closely at trying to get rid of any aspect of ourselves that we don't like, um, How's that working for you? It's widely acknowledged out of our own experience that it becomes stronger. So maybe the best bet is to let it be, to study it, to see it, to see when harm comes out of it, to see when it's just who we are. And it's interesting that the clearest people I've known in my life, Roshi Kaplow, Daito Roshi, uh, Shugen Roshi, and others, are very much themselves. Very, very much themselves. They're not some idea of a perfected being that doesn't have any neurosis. They honor their neurosis. And they investigate their neurosis. And they work with their neurosis. It's called practice. So that's our mind. Shanti Davis says, in this world, unsubdued and crazed elephants are incapable of causing such harms as the miseries of the deepest hell, which can be caused by the unleashed elephant of the mind. So this was written uh, in the 800s, I think, or 700s. So picture in India a crazed elephant. How, how can you possibly stop from the physical harm that a crazed elephant will do? You have no means to stop it. There's no guns. Um, you're going to walk up to such a creature with a rope and capture it? Maybe not. There's, there's nothing you can do. And yet that is not as much of the misery of the deepest hell which can be caused by the the unleashed elephant of our minds. And again, I keep pointing to this world because it's so obvious. We can see that. And I think one of the benefits of our current politician-in-chief is that we really get to see our own mind at its worst. I mean, we really do. And maybe there are some people in this audience or listening 
who feel differently, and I can respect that, but with all due respect, uh, narcissism, severe narcissism is severe narcissism. And if you can't call that out, I would hope you would take another look at that because it causes enormous harm. It's the self, nothing but the self. The self and nothing but the self in the worst possible way. There's a good way that there could be nothing but the self, a realized way. Uh, But everything's included in that self. That's not the case with what's going on. So the invitation here is to practice awareness. And clearly Zazen is a base of that. If that's all we do, we become gradually more aware of our mind. And some of that may carry over to when we're not in Zazen. But my question is, how do you understand Zazen? For a long time, the way I understood Zazen is formally sitting and then getting up and doing whatever the hell I wanted. In fact, I think the Zazen in some ways reinforced that. But eventually I came to understand that was not constructive to me or to others. So how do you understand Zazen? Is it just sitting in a particular manner, in a particular place, at a particular time? Is Zazen moving from formal sitting into the practice of awareness at all times and circumstances? And I keep saying practice, not accomplishment. There's no accomplishment in Zazen. There's nothing it gives you. It's practice. It's a thing we do to the best of our ability at any given time and place. Look at your own mind in formal Zazen. There are times perhaps we can sit down and instantly be home. And there are times we can sit down and for the next hour or half hour or however long we're sitting, nothing except continuous thoughts happen. Yet starting what we are, where we are, our mind does become clearer. So accepting that, whatever the circumstances of our mind, and studying that, and staying with that, it happens. So please don't be fooled by our measuring mind, the critical one within us that is unceasingly dissatisfied with herself and informs us that we are failing. If you practice awareness, we may notice when we're asleep to our thoughts. And as such, we can't fail. We will sometimes be asleep to our thoughts. That's not a problem. But notice that when we can notice that. Maybe a week later, we'll notice that we haven't paid attention to our thoughts the whole week. But in that moment, we are. So there's no grade here. Do you really understand that? There's no grade here. Now, if we really feel that nothing is happening in our zazen, then that should be investigated perhaps with a teacher, or you should look at what you're doing. But that aside, most of what we feel is just our customary self-doubt and inner criticism that's unending for most of us. For those who do not guard their minds will be unable to guard their practice. So in eating and walking and talking and thinking and reading and going to the bathroom and sleeping, just... Pay attention. Do your best to be aware. Pay attention to your own mind. Your mind is virtually always in motion. Are you aware of it? With care, with attention. If you're not willing to cultivate this, the chance of practice deepening into a practice that opens you up to your true self is not great. It's not likely that your life is going to change very much. The Buddha said that the Dharma, 
the direct truth of things, is directly visible, timeless, calling out to be seen. He further says it's available to us and that that place where it is to be realized is within oneself. It's yours. There's no mystery here. There's nothing hidden here. It's all right before us. It's always been right before us. What stops us from realizing it is our own mind, which is not to be punished, but to be practiced. The truth, in order to become a liberating truth, has to be directly realized. can't be read about, although we read and study, but it has to be known directly. It's not enough to merely accept it on faith, although faith helps, or to believe it on the authority of books or a teacher, or to think about it, think it out through deduction and inferences. And I see this all the time. It has to be known by insight, grasped and absorbed by a knowing and immediate seeing that does not have two parts. It's whole. You know, we talk about mindfulness, and it's, it's one, of, one part of the Eightfold Noble Path. Mindfulness, in its best embodiment, is not dualistic. We may have to start that way. We, we may have to be aware that we're witnessing paying attention, just as we start that way in Zazen. There's a self-awareness, a self-consciousness. But a funny thing happens as we continue to sit that slowly dissolves, although at no point do we know how it dissolves or when. But we become much less self-conscious. We grow into who we are, who we've always been, by dropping the self, but there's no one to drop the self that we're talking about. It just happens. By seeing for ourselves that the self has no basis. And I say that, but there's, there's no process of seeing that a self has no basis that is known to us. It's just we sit in. We can't figure this out. It's not an intellectual process. So with the process of right mindfulness, we practice remaining in the present. And even if we feel we're witnessing it, that's okay. No matter how we feel, it's okay. We practice doing our best to be open, quiet, and alert, and contemplative of the present moment. It helps also, I've noticed, to talk less. We talk a lot. And notice what happens when we spend a day essentially not talking, how that affects our mind. It might be assumed that we're always aware of the present, but this is a mirage. Only seldom do we, come, do we become aware of the present in the precise way that zazen and mindfulness asks of us, just open awareness. If the elephant of my mind is firmly bound on all sides by the rope of mindfulness, all fears will cease to exist and all virtues will come into my hand. This is, he's talking of his direct experience here. He's sharing with you what he himself has experienced. And this is the basis of taking the practice off the mat into our life. This leads naturally to the eight gates of Zen that we practice here in this Zendo. All eight gates are essential. This leads naturally to our vows that all beings are Buddha. And this naturally leads to the paramitas, to the perfections, meaning wholeness, of ways to realize ourselves, to the integrity of the precepts and the specific applications of the ten values guarding our work and the beyond fear of differences work. And I try and bring that in in every talk if I can. 
because that's what the Sangha is directly facing. How can we as a Sangha and as individuals not leave anyone out of our practice? How can we have a Sangha deeply understand that our conditioned responses to others is calibrated? That even in the midst of some parts of us that are free, there are other parts that are not free. So when we talk of enlightened beings, be careful. Be very careful. There are no fully enlightened beings. There's only beings. Some with a lot of insight, some with none, and everything in between. And every one of us is conditioned. It has to be. By how we live, by how we've been brought up, by our parents. The world of karma is boundless. And we're all, all in that world. There's another side to that. Karma fundamentally doesn't exist. So where do you find yourself in that? How do you realize that karma fundamentally doesn't exist and then live within the karma that you have? That's what this practice is completely about. All beings, including your own frightened, sometimes deluded self, are Buddha. Not all beings practice the way of the bodhisattva. But it's available to us. And I hope you give that some thought. That intent is not an emotional reaction to a talk or a day of sitting or a month of practice. But actually what it means and how to go about cultivating your life as an awakened life. Your life is a life of the precepts. Your life is a Buddha. Thanks for listening. Do you have physical challenges to visiting Zen Mountain Monastery or Fire Lotus Temple? The Diamond Net is a group of Mountains and Rivers Order students who are available to support your practice. We provide Dharma and other support to Sangha members facing life challenges such as illness or mobility issues. If you would like to visit the monastery or the Zen Center but need some physical help, someone from the Diamond Net can assist you. For information, email diamondnet at mro.org or visit our webpage at zmm.org and look under the Programs menu.